It's my great pleasure to introduce Philip Jarrett, who's going to talk to us this evening about Cody and Rowe, two remarkable men. Philip is a freelance author, an editor, and a consultant specializing in aviation history. He has been assistant editor of Aerospace and of Aeroplane Monthly, and production editor of Flight International. Good evening, Mr. President, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, I intend to compare two of Britain's great early pioneers of aviation, their characters and their respective approaches to the problems of powered flight, their achievements and shortcomings, and the subsequent developments of their first aircraft. To do this in the allotted time will be no easy task, and the following presentation will of necessity concentrate on the key points. Samuel Franklin Cowdery, later self-styled Cody after his Wild West hero, Colonel William Frederick Buffalo Bill Cody, was born in Davenport, Iowa, in the USA, in 1867. While Edwin Elliot Verdon Rowe was born in Patricroft, near Manchester, in 1877. So Cody was Rowe's senior by some ten years. Cody led the exciting life of a frontiersman, cowboy, and Wild West showman before taking up residence in the UK in 1890 where he continued to travel with his Wild West show and Western theatricals. Rowe, on the other hand, became a marine engineer and then a draftsman in the nascent automobile industry. According to Cody himself, his aeronautical inclinations were fired by a Chinese cook in the USA who taught him the arcane art of kite building and flying, a fascination that was to combine with his cowboy image to produce one of aviation's most singular pioneers. Rowe, on the other hand, like a good number of others who caught the flying bug, gained his initial inspiration from the observation of seabirds during his various voyages and began building model gliders. Thus, their respective paths to powered flight were quite different, but it is interesting to observe the effects this had on their progress. Cody developed his kites as a private venture until, by 1899, he had evolved a system using a train of kites that could lift a man. Um, in the autumn of 1901, he first contacted the War Office regarding their potential for military reconnaissance, and that November, he patented a man-lifting kite system. Although he lacked formal training as an engineer, Cody seems to have had a genius for mechanical invention and application. He took the box kite concept, conceived by Wenham and developed by Lawrence Hargrave, to another level, achieving unmatched control and stability of the devices, and continued to develop and improve his system, adding vestigial wing extensions. Following acceptance of the patent a year later and successful military and naval trials, Cody was engaged as chief kiting instructor at the balloon factory at Farnborough. His work on the kites entailed investigations into lateral and longitudinal stability that honed skills that would prove useful in the years ahead. In the summer of 1905, Cody built the glider kite, seen here, a large, lightly loaded biplane of 51-foot span with a pair of ailerons beneath the extremities of its lower wing 
that were described by him as planes that will lift and rise if one lifts, the other descends. Not the most crystal clear of explanations, but the best we have. As well as being flown as an unmanned kite, it could be sent up with a man lying prone on the lower wing and then released to glide down. After initial trials at the Crystal Palace, it was flown at Farnborough in the latter part of the year. Cody said that it carried eight or ten men up the second day we had it out, all separately, naturally. He stated that the longest glide was 750 feet, with a drop of 350 feet, carrying one pound to three square foot. And that the longest glide he had made was 80 yards, 240 feet, with the wind. And Cody weighed 204 pounds. This enabled Cody not only to experiment with control systems, but to gain initial experience of flying. However, he is self-contradictory about the glider kite, saying at one stage that he was surprised at its success, <clears throat> and on a later occasion that this machine was not a success, in my opinion, although in the opinion of some people, it was a success. The latter judgment might be due to the fact that one of Cody's sons, Vivian, suffered permanent injury to his back when he crashed in it. Cody's practical work on heavier-than-air aircraft then lapsed while he worked on the Nolisicundus airship. In the meantime, Rowe, now 29 and further inspired by reports of the Wright brothers' accomplishments, entered the picture. By early 1906, he was flying this 40-inch span model, closely, ba closely based on the Wright's 1902 glider, was reportedly making a similar but much larger one, and had plans to build a practical motor-driven machine. In March 1906, he exhibited a six-foot span right type with controllable rudder and wing warping, and an added appendage of his own devising in the form of a large horizontal surface behind the rudder with marked negative incidents to impart longitudinal stability. By the time he patented his design for a full-size aeroplane, as seen here, in November 1906, this surface had become a canard steering plane that doubled as an elevator and a warping surface for lateral control. He abandoned the rudder completely as undesirable. Like many early pioneers, he seems to have underestimated the control problem. In December, he wrote, There is only one way of learning the secret of stability, the all-important item of flight, and that is by actual experience. Even so, he was perhaps in too much of a hurry and failed to evaluate his proposed control system in a manned glider before progressing to a powered machine. He believed his patented two-axis control system was better than that of the Wrights, which, like most pioneers, he evidently did not understand and hoped to reap the financial rewards of its universal adoption. By late December... Rowe was testing an 8-foot, 6-inch span, rubber-powered, forward-steering plane model with a pusher propeller. And for this machine, he claimed flights of up to 120 feet. By late January 1907, he was building his full-size aeroplane, as well as testing several powered models of differing configurations. He enjoyed some success with two of these at a model competition at the Alexandra Palace in April when a model with twin rear steering planes 
won him the £75 second prize. The first prize wasn't awarded. His full-size machine, however, was based upon the forward steering plane model, which he preferred. There's an interesting link with Cody here. This photograph of Rowe holding up his winning model at the Alexander Palace was taken by Cody. And here's Cody with his camera at the Alexander Palace. It appears that the American was sufficiently impressed by Rowe's models to consider incorporating the steering plane idea in a full-size aeroplane himself, as these undated preliminary design sketches by Cody reveal. You will notice that the steering planes in, what, in the, drawing, uh, the drawing nearest me have been crossed out, indicating a change of mind. By the end of August 1907, Rowe had completed his 36-foot span biplane, and it was in a shed he had erected alongside the finishing straight at the Brooklyn's motor racing circuit. He had his sights set on the daily graphics offer of £1,000 for the first one-mile flight by a British aviator, and also, rather more optimistically, on the Daily Mail's offer of £10,000 for the first flight from London to Manchester. Unfortunately, it was not only in its control system that his machine was deficient. Rowe had failed to understand that most of a wing's lift is generated on its upper surface, believing that lift was wholly created by air pressure on the underside. He therefore covered only the undersurface, leaving the spars and ribs exposed above, seriously compromising the aircraft's aerodynamics. Moreover, he greatly underestimated the power required, fitting an air-cooled, six-horsepower JAP two-cylinder V motorcycle engine. He based his estimate on figures produced by Professor Samuel Langley of the USA, but, as Octave Chanute pointed out, these related to the lifting surface alone, and did not allow for the added resistance of the framing, motor, and pilot. His propeller was of primitive and inefficient fan-type design, which was quite typical of the time, generally speaking. He also believed that he had positioned the engine on the aircraft's centre of gravity, when stationary. But with the pilot and steering plane so far forward, this seems improbable. By mid-December, Rowe was testing his biplane on the Brooklyn's track, but he quickly found that he had insufficient power to take off. Late in the month, he was towed into the air behind motor cars and claimed that this cleared up many doubtful points, but the tow line would have prevented any true assessment of the effectiveness or otherwise of his control system. He had some difficulty in curbing the driver's over-enthusiasm, which caused at least one nasty crash. In March 1908, Rowe had to move his shed across to the other side of the track to the far side of the paddock and paint it green to render it less conspicuous. He was seeking a more powerful engine but continued his trials, experimented with different propeller designs and modified his aeroplane. He eventually negotiated the loan of an 1824 horsepower Antoinette eight-cylinder V water-cooled engine until the end of July and was hoping to win the graphics £1,000 prize for the one-mile flight. Unfortunately, the engine had to come over from France and required several alterations and was not installed until the end of May. That's the aeroplane in its ultimate form. There's Roe kneeling down by the, uh, just beneath the propeller.
Although it was three or four times the rated power of the JAP, the Antoinette was well over three times heavier and there was the added weight of the radiator and the coolant water. To compensate, Roe increased the wing area by adding small semi-wings between the main planes. They're visible there. But this too added more weight, of course. The effect of all these changes on the machine's weight distribution, balance and control had yet to be assessed. Unfortunately, Roe was given notice to quit Brooklands by July the 17th, and in the six weeks from installing the engine until his departure, he managed to make only six trials. Although he made some more towed flights, he never succeeded in getting his aircraft off the ground under its own power alone, telling Major Baden-Powell of the Aeronautical Society in a letter dated 16th of July, only that he had nearly left the ground with present engine. This failure is confirmed by Mr. G.A. Simmons of Adelston, Surrey, who wrote in a letter to the Automotor Journal dated the 26th of August and published in the 5th of September issue that Rowe did not get up quite sufficient speed to rise. And by a statement in the June 1909 issue of Aeronautics that, owing to insufficient motive power, no actual flights were made. Evidently, neither of these writers was aware of the shortcomings of the aircraft itself. Having dismantled his aeroplane, which he subsequently abandoned, Rowe had to find a new site for trials. Meanwhile, in the latter part of August, he visited Wilbur Wright at Le Mans in France and was able to examine the Flyer Model A and ask many questions, though adverse weather deprived him of the chance of witnessing a flight. This and the appearance of the voisin-built Goupy triplane in France led him to design a completely new aircraft with another patented control system. During these goings-on at Brooklands, Cody had also progressed towards a full-size powered aeroplane. About 1907, he made tentative tests of large war kites modified for possible power application, and then built an unpiloted power kite with twin fins instead of the rear box cells, powered by a 12-horsepower Boucher engine. Details of its testing are vague and imprecise, but it was flown as a captive aeroplane inside the balloon factory airship shed, travelling along a wire suspended between two tall posts. Cody stated that it was supposed to be let loose, but that the authorities were afraid I might do some damage by letting it go up in the sky. About 1907-1908, he also tested a Wright-type glider kite, although Cody tended to play down any Wright influence on his aeroplane. There is no doubt, however, that through published sources and Colonel Kappa, who had visited the Wrights in 1904, he had access to much information on the Wrights gliders and their first powered aeroplane long before he started work on British Army Aeroplane No. 1. Later, Cody stated, you will notice the similarity of the Wright machine and mine. Not only that, but the curves and system of constructing the curves are precisely alike. Cody, as an untrained, intuitive engineer, always built large, overstrength structures, but when the time came for him to build a man-carrying aeroplane, his employment at the balloon factory caused even greater demands to be made upon him. When Kappa drafted a specification for the Army's first aeroplane in March and April 1908, it was extremely demanding. 
requiring that a passenger be carried, plus instruments and maps and fuel for a four-hour flight. It was expected to attain 2,000 feet above its starting point, to be able to carry its full load at 5,000 feet, to have a duration of two hours, and to be able to circle over any desired point, as well as being left in the open for a month without very material deterioration. As the machine was already under construction, Cody must have been aware of these requirements much earlier. Neither Rowe nor Cody had ideal conditions for developing a pioneer-powered aeroplane. Rowe was always short of funding and had constant interference from Brooklyn's clerk of the course, but at least he had a prepared surface on which to run his aircraft, even if he was at the mercy of the wind. Cody, although he had financial backing, was expected to produce a practical military aeroplane virtually from scratch and operate it from very rough terrain. Work on BAA number one at Farnborough was slow and protracted, starting late in 1907 and continuing until the late summer of 1908. During this process, almost all aspects of the machine underwent numerous changes, but basically it was a wooden, wire-braced biplane with deep gap, with an all-moving canard foreplane and a vertical rudder at the rear. The 50-horsepower Antoinette engine was mounted at the front of the low-set fuselage, while the pilot was seated back by the lower wing trailing edge. A rugged, sprung, four-wheel undercarriage was fitted, with auxiliary balancing wheels at the wingtips. Two belt-driven, counter-rotating, two-bladed pusher propellers were positioned outboard between, between the upper and lower wings. At the pre-flight stage, it had provision for no fewer than three means of exercising lateral control. A rudder above the upper wing linked to ailerons outboard of the wingtips and wing warping. There were no foot-operated controls. The pilot actuated all of the control surfaces by means of a control column incorporating a wheel. In addition, Cody provided screw adjustment that allowed the wing camber to be changed on the ground. The wings were single-surfaced initially, being covered on their top surfaces only, but later the centre sections were double-surfaced. The engine was not available until the summer of 1908, and Cody's commitment to kite experiments meant that the first trial did not take place until September the 19th. These continued, interspersed with modifications and adjustments, until the 29th, when a 78-yard jump was accomplished, Cody believing that bigger propellers were needed. He then had to return to naval man-lifting kite trials, and it was not until October the 13th that the trials of BAA No. 1 were resumed. By this time, further and substantial modifications had been made, including removal of the wingtip ailerons and repositioning of the radiators. Cody made more hops and jumps on the 14th, covering about 100 yards and attaining a height of 10 to 12 feet. Deciding that the wing camber was too deep and creating excessive drag, Cody reduced it and made further hops, and he later recalled that two tentative flights were made that day. I went one flight about 10 feet high and the other one about 12 and flew 100 yards each time, he said. I jumped up, but they were only jumps, as I say. The next day was spent giving the aircraft a thorough overhaul and making final adjustments to the wing curvature. Then, on Friday the 16th of October, Cody became the first man to make a controlled and sustained 
powered aeroplane flight in Great Britain. He began by making two or three circular runs on Farnborough Common to warm up the engine and get the feel of the controls. I was accused of doing nothing but jumping with my machine, he later said, so I got a bit agitated and went to fly. He then began taxiing towards the Swan Inn Plateau and the machine suddenly leapt into the air and flew onto the plateau, flying uphill for about 75 yards. But this was only a foretaste of what was to come. Cody next took his aeroplane to a point in the extreme southwest corner of the grounds of the officer's mess. He planned to fly diagonally across the common in a northwesterly direction, landing in a clear space to the south of the balloon factory. There was little scope for error, and the ground was far from ideal for aeroplanes, especially an untried pioneer machine. After a very short run, estimated by Cody at 60 yards, the biplane took off, passing a clump of trees on the right. An altitude of between 30 feet and 40 feet was reached in less than 100 yards, and Cody then flew steadily across Farnborough Common for about a quarter of a mile, according to accounts in the Times and Aeronautics, in a beautiful, smooth flight. Unfortunately, Cody was drifting off course and veering in a southwesterly direction, influenced by an east-northeasterly wind as he reached the open common and gained height. Instead of passing to the left of a second clump of trees across the common, as he had intended, the aircraft was now heading directly for it. Cody had begun his descent, and when he saw the trees ahead, he climbed and cleared them by eight feet, but encountered severe air disturbance which rolled the aircraft violently. The port wingtips struck the ground very hard, slewing the machine round and causing it to lose height, though Cody did manage to roll it back onto an even keel by use of the top rudder. His problems were not over. He now faced yet more trees, and he lacked the necessary altitude to clear them. Turning hard left to prevent a collision, he also managed to avoid a group of tall pines passing between them, sorry, passing between them and a small clump of bushes. The further loss of height in the second turn allowed the left wing to strike the ground again, and this time recovery was impossible. The aeroplane crashed into the ground and, in Cody's terms, crumpled up like so much tissue paper, the framework was considerably wrecked. Thanks to the inherent shock-absorbing qualities of the Pioneer aeroplane structure, Cody emerged unscathed. The crash occurred just a little south of what is now the eastern end of Farnborough's main runway. The distance covered in the flight was later measured and found to be 1,390 feet. The aircraft was reckoned to have flown at a speed of between 25 and 30 miles per hour. Fortunately, the engine and propellers escaped damage completely, though the left wings were smashed. Although Cody had drifted off course in a southwesterly direction, he flew steadily and there was no sign of any control problems. While the Wright brothers had made their first flights over open sandy ground, Cody had to contend with trees and his attempts to evade these ultimately led to the crash. Doubtless, both Cody's inexperience of the lateral control and the system's inherent shortcomings contributed to the flight's unfortunate ending. But unlike other pioneers, Cody had had to do more than simply keep his machine on an even keel on its first true flight. He had been required to manoeuvre to counter adverse winds and avoid obstacles, and had done so with a measure of success. Official reports of the event 
stress the need for a better and larger test site. It was a somewhat ignominious end to the first powered, sustained and controlled flight in Great Britain, but in spite of the mishap, Cody became famous overnight. I am sorry that the accident occurred, he told the Times correspondent, but I have accomplished what I aimed at. I have constructed a machine which could fly. Up to this point, both Cody and Rowe had displayed great perseverance and tenacity, especially Rowe, who was working virtually alone, whereas Cody had the resources of the balloon factory behind him. But Cody had gathered far more experience of the problems of heavy-than-air flight, having been aloft in man-carrying kites and the glider kite, and having made various tests of control systems using these devices and also the power kite. Rowe, on the other hand, had attempted to move straight from relatively small models to a full-size powered aircraft, failing to do any more than assess potential control systems by observing the behaviour of his models. While Cody was evidently aware of the difficulties of devising an effective control system and devoted some effort to this, Rowe does not seem to have regarded this as a serious difficulty, having convinced himself that he had a practical system even before he had begun building a full-size aeroplane. We'll now take a look at some subsequent developments. Both Cody and Rowe resumed their experiments in 1909, the former with his much-modified original machine and the latter with a completely new aircraft. Cody's aeroplane was extensively rebuilt, being given new wings, extended booms to carry a new foreplane, fitted with differential ailerons and rear rudder, and the top rudder was moved twice. His next significant flight occurred on January 20th, 1909, when a structural failure resulted in a crash. At the end of the month, the Imperial Defence Committee decided that the balloon factory's work on aeroplanes should cease, and Cody's engagement was terminated on March the 31st. He was allowed to keep the aeroplane and retain its engine on loan, but had to camp with it unprotected on Laffan's Plain until June the 2nd, when a shed was erected. Hard times. On June the 18th, Cody made his first circular flight, covering one and a quarter miles and landing without damage. And on July the 20th, <coughs> he made a flight of at least four miles, including three circles. On August the 12th, having installed a 60-80 horsepower ENV engine and switched the position of pilot and engine, he accomplished a three-mile flight and made a figure eight. And two days later came his first passenger flights, when Colonel Kappa and Layla Cody were taken up. On September the 8th, he was aloft for one hour six minutes, attaining 600 feet and covering 40 miles. On October the 9th, Cody was forced to abandon an attempt on the London to Manchester prize, owing to engine problems. Rowe had written patriotically in August 1908 that, if this is to be won by an Englishman, there is no time to lose. So he was probably relieved by this news, though he was nowhere near winning it himself. Cody's most noteworthy achievement at the Doncaster Aviation Meeting in October was his naturalisation as a British citizen on the 21st. In January, his aeroplane was dismantled and stored, but on Kappa's recommendation, he was awarded British Aviator Certificate No. 9 on merit on the 7th of June 1910. This is an, not generally known, but um, in those early days, uh, pilots often didn't always um, 
uh, get to have to fly the test to um, to get their license. Um, and in fact, at the time Roe was awarded his license, he didn't even have an aeroplane. While Cody had made great strides in 1909, Roe continued to struggle. Having abandoned his biplane, he drew his inspiration from France and built a 20-foot span tractor triplane modelled on the Goopy triplane, but somewhat smaller. He had now patented another control system, using a system of levers and struts to twist the trailing edge of the middle wing and transmit the movement to the upper and lower planes, and this he incorporated in his new machine. Rowe was seeking a new test site, and he later recalled, As Cody was experimenting at Laffin's plane, I thought it would be nice to keep him company so applied at the War Office for permission to erect a shed near Cody's, but was informed that this request could not be acceded to. Here was a typical case of a foreigner, American, receiving favourable treatment before an Englishman. Although I liked dear old Cody, I felt a bit sore about it. This disregarded, of course, the circumstances under which Cody had come to be on the site and his earlier lengthy and close involvement with the military. In the end... Rose triplane was assembled in a railway arch alongside the River Lee on Leighton Marshes in Essex and it was completed in late February, early March. While he awaited its 9-10 horsepower JAP engine, Rowe installed the 6 horsepower JAP from his biplane and made preliminary taxiing trials in the early mornings or evenings. Late in April, Rowe entered into partnership with his brother Humphrey who would leave Elliot to design and build aeroplanes while he took responsibility for finance and organisation. The nine-horsepower engine finally arrived late in May and on June the 5th, Rowe made hops of a few yards only. At the end of June, he reported that he had made short flights, hardly more than jumps, of 50 foot or so at a height of two or three feet. Remember, Cody had flown his first circuit on June the 18th. Rowe said... Carrying 40 pounds per horsepower seems easy enough on paper, but is rather different in practice. This machine had variable incidence wings, as well as wing warping and rudder, but the triple tailplane was fixed at this stage. His own description of his handling of the machine shows that he was suddenly applying maximum incidence after the tail had lifted. Thus the aircraft would jump into the air, but then quickly descend owing to the sudden increase in drag, which was more than the little engine could overcome. The usual ritual of crashes and modifications accompanied the trials, and on July the 13th, a 100-foot hop was made. Rowe had real problems in the limitations of his flying grounds area and its rough surface, and he suffered constant troubles with local authorities seeking to prevent him from using the site, which is rather amusing because... Now, of course, in a hundred years later, they're trying to make the most of it being a site for pioneer aeroplane experiments. Then, on the morning of the 23rd of July, Roe made four straight-line flights covering some 200 to 300 yards on the latter three and attaining heights of four to ten feet. The motor reported, the machine was very stable in the air and flew with every semblance of being capable of sustained flight. Short though they were, these were probably the first tentatively successful flights by a Briton in an all-British aeroplane. Rowe's achievement was acclaimed in the press, but the lamentably slow progress of British aviation in general was brought sharply into focus only two days later, on July the 25th, 
when Blériot crossed the channel in his monoplane. During the remainder of the year, Rome made little real progress, and in October he had still flown only 300 yards. He took his triplane, plus an uncompleted second machine, to the Blackpool Flying Carnival that month, but the event was a washout and he made no noteworthy flights. In fact, no, none of the British entrants did. Resuming his trials with his new triplane at Wembley Park, Middlesex, on December the 6th, he made several steady flights of about half a mile, although he had still not managed a turn. On Christmas Eve, however, he suffered a major crash when he side-slipped into the ground. At the start of 1910, A.V. Rowe and company was formed. The first product to emerge from the new factory in Manchester was the Mercury triplane, seen here, with a 35-horsepower green engine and lever-operated wing warping, variable incidence wings and tailplanes, and a rudder. Rowe took this machine to Brooklands and resumed his trials, but progress was insignificant until the 17th of April, when he crashed it. When it re-emerged ten days later, it had undergone significant changes. The patented control system was at last done away with, the wings had ailerons, the tailplanes alone had variable incidence, and the rudder was enlarged. With the aeroplane thus modified, on the 1st of June, Rowe flew his first complete circles, just short of a year after Cody had accomplished his feat. With the appearance of the first Rowe 3 triplane in mid-June, Rowe had two reasonably practical machines. In the Rowe 3 on the 7th of July, he made a 15-minute flight, and two days later he flew for 25 minutes, executing figure eights and sharp turns with the greatest ease. On the 20th of July, he passed the test for his aviator certificate, number 18 being issued to him on the 26th. Thereafter, the careers of the two pioneers diverged. Cody's new biplane, with a 60-horsepower green engine, appeared on the 22nd of June 1910, and he took it to the Bournemouth Flying Meeting in mid-July and to Lanark early in August, but it was underpowered, and an attempt to install a second engine proved abortive. Once he had installed the ENV from his previous machine, however, it flew well, and he logged 113 miles over Latham's Plain in the first week of September. He also made nine passenger flights that month. On the last day of the year, Cody won the British Michelin Cup and £500 for the Briton who flew the greatest distance on an all-British aeroplane that year, setting new British records for distance and duration with a flight of 189.2 miles in 4 hours 46 minutes. Would you like to spend five hours up in that? It was reported that the aeroplane had flown 1,230 miles since October the 10th. Cody entered his next biplane for the Daily Mail's £10,000 circuit of Britain, which started at Brooklands on July the 22nd, 1911, when this picture was taken. That's the Brooklands banking in the background with a, a rapt audience watching the participants take off. Despite several mishaps, Cody took fourth place, his twin-tailed aircraft being the only British machine to complete the gruelling 1,010-mile course. On September the 11th, he won British Michelin Cup number two and 400 pounds for the fastest time round a 125-mile cross-country course, being the only competitor to complete the course. And then, on October the 29th, he again won British Michelin Cup number one and 500 pounds, 
covering 261.5 miles in 5 hours 15 minutes over a 7-mile closed circuit, a new British endurance record. The aircraft had now flown some 2,500 miles. In November, he became the first British aviator to win the Royal Aero Club's new superior certificate. In January 1912, Cody began flying his rebuilt Michelin Cup machine, now fitted with a 120 horsepower Austro Daimler. On the 27th, he became the first person in Britain to carry four passengers on a single flight. By early May, he had rebuilt his circuit of Britain biplane and had nearly completed a new monoplane, seen here. Both aircraft were entered for the forthcoming military aeroplane trials, but unfortunately both were crashed shortly before the event. Undeterred, Cody built a new biplane incorporating usable components from the wrecks and flew it to Lark Hill on Salisbury Plain for the trials on July the 27th. It was the only aeroplane in the trials that was flown in. By this time, Cody was rather being left behind by advancing technology. His aeroplanes had evolved little since 1910 and he must have been one of very few constructors still making extensive use of bamboo in his primary structures. Although it offers the benefit of lightness compared with timber, bamboo being a grass, it is notoriously unreliable. Two similar pieces can behave quite differently and its tendency to crack and spit, split longitudinally means that it is necessary to add binding between the nodes. All major aircraft manufacturers had abandoned it long since. Rowe never used it after his first biplane of 1908. Nonetheless, owing to the peculiarly specific demands of the trials, which rendered them a pointless exercise, in the words of the late Jack Bruce, Cody's aeroplane emerged the winner, though it was actually totally unsuited to the military's needs. Cody won the £4,000 first prize, plus the £1,000 first prize for aeroplanes manufactured wholly in the UK, apart from their engines, and flown by British subjects. The War Office was thus virtually obliged to buy the winning aeroplane, and ordered one more example. In addition, early in August, Cody was awarded £5,000 compensation in respect to the military adoption of his man-lifting kites. Suddenly, Cody was wealthy and he was also awarded the Royal Aero Club's gold medal. In October, flying the military trials winner, Cody won the £600 British Empire Michelin Cup for the fastest time over a 186-mile cross-country circuit. The aircraft was then delivered to the military, but failed in flight on the 28th of April 1913, killing its pilot. The second machine was taken on charge on the 20th of February, but was wrecked on the 31st of March after flying only two and a half hours with the Royal Flying Corps. Although it was repaired, it never flew again, and it now resides in the Science Museum in London, the sole surviving original Cody aeroplane. Nearby hangs Rowe's first triplane of 1909. Cody had been slow to set up a company, but in May 1913, Cody and Sons Aerial Navigation Limited was formed to promote and develop his inventions and financial backing was sought. He was also scheming a design for a large machine in which to attempt the Daily Mail's £10,000 prize for a transatlantic flight and building a seaplane to compete for the same newspaper's £5,000 first prize in a Circuit of Britain race. This machine, 
by far the biggest built by Cody, apparently made its maiden flight as a land plane on the 14th of July 1913. And at the end of the month, the successful flotation tests were made on the Basingstoke Canal. Cody then refitted the wheel undercarriage and flew the machine back to Brooklands. On August the 6th, he flew it back to Laffan's Plain, and after two flights on the morning of the 7th, he took Hampshire cricketer W.H.B. Evans up for a flight at 10.30. Tragically, the machine broke up in the air and pitched out both occupants, who were killed instantly. Cody, a civilian, was held in such esteem by the military and so loved by the British people that he was given a full military funeral. However, it is difficult to see how he would have fitted into the rapidly evolving aviation community had he survived. His aeroplanes were quaint and outmoded, and he lacked the means and ability to compete with the professional manufacturers that were now struggling into existence and producing far more business-like machines with practical applications. Moreover, Cody's daredevil streak had manifested itself on several occasions as an apparent disregard for his own safety, when he took unnecessary risks by flying his aeroplanes when they were in a dangerous state. His contribution in the early years had been immense, and his eccentricity, charisma and true pioneering spirit made him a popular hero. But it is hard to visualise the part he might have played in the years ahead without some fresh design input by professional engineers and designers. Rowe, on the other hand, trod a very different path. His hopes of winning any substantial money prizes evaporated when J.T.C. Moore Brabazon flew the first circular mile by a British aviator on a British-built machine on the 31st of October 1909. And Frenchman Louis Paulin, after a famous battle with Claude Graham White in April 1910, won the coveted £10,000 London to Manchester prize. At that time, Rowe was still struggling with his Mercury triplane and had yet to fly a mile, let alone from London to Manchester. But Rowe's great tenacity and perseverance and the fact that he was now employing other capable professionals in his newfound company at last bore fruit. Despite the disastrous loss of two aeroplanes in a fire on a railway truck en route to the 1910 Blackpool meeting, he managed to put up a creditable show at the event with a hastily assembled replacement triplane, the one seen here. You'll notice it has a heating for the passenger who has his back to the radiator. He then took his aircraft to the Harvard-Boston meeting in the USA, but, this perform but its performance there was disappointing. Back in England, however, the company produced the Row 4 triplane, in which the cumbersome triplane tail surfaces at last gave way to a monoplane tailplane. This was the first of row designs to have the centre of gravity at the wing's centre of lift. Thus, the tailplane was non-lifting and purely used for controlling the aeroplane in pitch. For some three years, Rowe's progress had been hampered by his dogged adherence to various fixations. This was quite common with many pioneers. At last, through trial and error, and doubtless with the helpful input of his new employees, he had learned the requirements for a stable aeroplane. This machine soon became the much-abused workhorse at the company's flying school at Brooklands, suffering many accidents at the hands of ham-fisted pupils and undergoing a variety of modifications during repair. In April 1911, 
the row type D biplane appeared, the progenitor of a great line of Avro biplanes. At least seven of these were built, but the market was small. The magazine Flight stated in early November 1911 that one of the things that stood to Rowe's credit was the construction of commercial aeroplanes for men of moderate means. Aeroplaning is considered the sport of the few, the writer added, but all along it has apparently been A.V. Rowe's object to make it the pastime of the many. For it has been his ambition to build machines that are inexpensive in initial cost and reasonable in upkeep. Initially, of course, this economical approach had been dictated by Rowe's own low finances. During October and November, Avro advertised a promotional special offer of 12 green engine type Ds at £400 each, but the private flying market was far too small to sustain one company, let alone Britain's struggling infant aviation industry. Cody aeroplanes had been advertised since late 1909, but not one machine was sold to a private buyer. The Type Ds were followed at the end of the year by the first Type E, a one-off, two-seat biplane that was bought off the factory floor by Australian pioneer John Dugan. This machine proved to be too small and underpowered to carry too easily, and a larger version quickly followed in March 1912. On May the 1st, 1912, a Type F monoplane, the world's first successful totally enclosed aeroplane, flew. It had a fairly brief existence, but led to the Type G, a larger enclosed biplane. This was entered in the military trials along with the Type E, but the latter's intended ABC engine was not ready in time, so only the G took part. For various reasons, it did not fare very well in the trials though it earned a place in aviation history by becoming the first aeroplane to be successfully recovered from a spin. Meanwhile, however, the company was at last achieving true success through sales to the military. The scaled-up Type E, seen here, proved to have a good performance, and in February 1912 the War Office had ordered three with no engines. More followed, including a single-seat variant, the ES, and it was on this aeroplane that the famous Avro comma-shaped rudder first appeared. When Avro introduced a numerical designation system, the E, which A.V. Rowe regarded as his first really successful aeroplane, became the Avro 500, and the single-seater, the Avro 502. Some 16 Nome-engine 500s were built in all. Early in 1913, Rowe made preliminary sketches for the 500's successor, with an 80-horsepower Nome-engine staggered wings and a single toothpick skid between its main wheels. By late July, the prototype was under test at Brooklands. It proved to have an outstanding performance, and it was this machine, the Avro 504, that really made the company's name and fortune. Thus the company, founded by Elliot Verdon Rowe, after several years of virtually single-handed struggle, blossomed into one of the world's great aircraft manufacturers. Its founder lived to see the great Vulcan jet bomber take to the skies, dying in 1958 after a long and productive life. In many respects, Cody and Rowe were chalk and cheese, Cody being regarded as the patriarch of British aviation even before his death, and Rowe becoming a revered figure somewhat later. But both were popular heroes, 
in the pioneer era, and they shared several of the traits that made them the remarkable men they surely were. Dogged determination, single-mindedness, perseverance and persistence in the face of adversity. Both were great pioneers in their respective ways, and both left their indelible marks in the annals of British aviation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Philip, for such an excellent summary of the achievement of such remarkable men. Now, I'm sure there'll be discussion. There are going to be microphones. Um, Lord Kirkby, um, two things. One, I'm surprised as an ex-aero modeler that uh, Roe didn't actually discover good stability just by fiddling around with models, but that's, that's just a comment. Um, but have you got any feel for why it was that the French did so much better so much earlier than, than we did. Is it, was it regulation or, or what? Well, the French were lucky in that Octave Chanute, of course, was, was French, although he lived in America. And Octave Chanute was a great friend of the Wrights. And I think in 1902, Octave Chanute went to France and he lectured to the French and he described the Wright gliders and showed pictures of them. And he did it again later on, a year or two, a year or less later, I think. Um, so they saw the right gliders. But like so many people, uh, Chanute himself didn't really understand how the right three-axis control system worked. Um, so he couldn't really explain it to the French. So the French built what they thought were good copies of the right gliders. In fact, they were appallingly bad. Um, but at least it, it gave them the basic configuration to work from. Um, and then, of course, in 1908, Wilbur went over to France and the French had made some progress. They were making longish hops and things like that in some fairly sane-looking aeroplanes and some that looked highly improbable. Um, and then Wilbur turned up in August 1908 and they, they'd long been describing the rights as bluffers and... Uh, and when he was ready, and Wilbur was not the bloke to be hurried, Wilbur got in his aeroplane one day, and he just got up and he flew a narrow circle, very short flight, and landed, and the French went absolutely mad. And um, things didn't really look back from there. Um, people like um, the Voisins had built fairly cumbersome machines, but along came Henry Farman, who could understand the need for some sort of lateral control, which the Voisins had omitted, um, and uh, the aeroplane began to develop. And it happened quicker than the Wrights had expected, but it was still a fairly longish procedure. Uh, in England, unfortunately, and I think slightly to this society's shame actually, Wilbur Wright's classic paper on gliding, which was public, which I think he read before in 1902 before the uh, Western Society of Engineers, um, it was, wasn't published until quite late, and it, this society could have published it, but they didn't. Um, it was published in a rather obscure magazine called Flying, about 1907, and unfortunately the illustrations were rather poor tracings of the uh, photographs, so there wasn't a lot to be learned. 
Um, and as I said before, a lot of these people had their pet fixations about how they thought an aeroplane should fly. Um, and things were just rather sad, sadly slow in Britain, I'm afraid. It's just the way it was. What do you think about Dunn as an well, aviator? Dunn, Dunn's a little more obscure in the early days, of course, because he, he, um, he disappeared off up to um, Blair Athol in Scotland, where he was working, like Cody, employed, employed by the uh, Royal Aircraft, uh, by the balloon factory, to experiment with his automatically stable biplanes. Um, he had some trouble getting things to work, first of all. He eventually did. But he, too, was dismissed by the factory, and um, he ended up working in league with Short Brothers and with Professor Huntingdon to develop his aeroplanes. Um, the Dun D7 and 8 were very successful. They would fly hands off. Um, but, of course, they, they were out of the mainstream, and... It's, it's strange, but even successful aeroplanes with odd configurations have a, have a great deal of struggle ahead of them to get away, to, to, to win over the, um, the con- what's regarded as the conventional configuration. But uh, Dunn's aeroplanes, certainly, you know, I mean, in Canada and in France, were flown remarkably well, but they just didn't seem to develop a great deal. It Burgess in America carried it carried on with the configuration for some time but the design the the, uh, the design just didn't seem to stick philip i'm rather intrigued to know how roe managed to finance himself in the early days i can see where cody's money came from but but how did roe manage to keep going with a lot of failures uh, before he, he became successful well he did have a he had a steady he had a job in the motor industry he, um, this is why, some, you know, he, he, he was restricted. He couldn't go and fly every day whenever he felt like it. And he was also restricted by limitations of when he could use the track at Brooklands, of course, by the clerk of the course. But he didn't have a lot of money, no. Um, he, he spent virtually everything he could get on his, on his aeroplane at first and just kept going. And it, it was an obsession, just as aviation is an obsession with probably nearly everybody here tonight. <laughs> Didn't he get some funding from other members of his family? Yes, as I mentioned, his, his brother Humphrey came in eventually. Uh, yes, he had a loan from his father and things like that, and the sort of thing that all of us would hope for, perhaps, at that stage of, an, of early development. Um, but when his brother came in, his brother had a business uh, in, um, in making things like elastic braces, um, bullseye braces, uh, in fact, the fact that um, Humphrey's finances supported the early work led to some people remarking that Rose aeroplanes were kept aloft by bullseye braces. Norman Barber, proudly wearing an Avro 504 Club tie. Congratulations. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times, or you made reference during your, your talk to the propellers. Yes. And how crude Rose early ones were and how much more sophisticated they became. Was that because of him or because of some of his staff? Well, propeller development is a very interesting subject. Um, it's difficult to say because there's so many outside influences all the time on these pioneers. It's very difficult to pin down something like propeller. But you see, everyone is watching what everyone else is doing. Um, the astounding thing that I learned a few years ago is, is about the right propellers, which are extraordinary. The early propellers mostly... Um, 
tended to be based on a, on a fan-type principle. Uh, Maxim in 1894. If you look at the, if you go to science museum, you can see one of these enormous Maxim propellers, and they're just like a big fan blades, and they're they're grossly inefficient for aviation. But everyone seemed to think that was the best way to go. But the Wrights didn't. The Wrights did their own propeller research, and they worked out mathematically the efficiency of the propellers for the 1903 Flyer one before they built the propeller and they got it right. And they, Wilbur Wright has a notebook that still exists where his estimates for propeller efficiency finish off saying equals 66%. And those first right propellers were 66% efficient, which is an incredible figure. And not only that, in the Wright Flyer 3 of 1905, first practical-powered aeroplane in the world, um, recent investigations by building and testing Flyer 3-type propellers has shown them to be over 80% efficient. And that was in 1905, long before anyone else was doing any true flying in any sense of the word. People in Europe didn't understand the right propellers at all. Um, they managed to get some thrust out of their propellers, but they had no idea how much they were losing. Um, in all sorts of ways. I mean, quite quite often they'd just couple the, end, the propeller up direct to the drive shaft. So they'd lose a lot of uh, efficiency because the propeller's going far, too fast for its efficiency. Whereas the Wright brothers geared their propellers right down to get maximum efficiency. And it was all done quite deliberately. Philip, I wonder if you could um, give a view on how you think things might have turned out for Roe if the First World War hadn't occurred. Difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, you change one thing, you change everything. This is the trouble. Um, how would it have turned out for the whole British aircraft industry? You might ask. They would probably, if um, they would probably have had even bigger struggles on their hands, um, unless the aeroplane had rapidly become extremely popular. And passenger, you know, uh, flights carrying any number of passengers for a practical purpose from point to point were still a fair way off. And it was, I mean, the First War definitely accelerated the aeroplane's development. Not always in the, in the, perhaps what might be regarded as the right direction. But a lot of developments forced by the First World War meant that at the end of the First World War, we had aeroplanes that could reasonably well be converted into passenger carriers. Although the, um, the conditions inside were extremely spartan to start with. It's, um, it's one of those questions that, um, they love asking on television. Did any of those early pioneers, did they have means of measuring airspeed? Did they have altimeters? Um, they could use barometers to, for, for altimeters. Uh, yes, they had measure, me, means of measuring their speed. Fairly primitive. They could use pressure plates and things like that. They came in just before the First War, I believe. Instrumentation was sparse and minimal. Um, I think the Black, Blackburn 1912 cockpit, somebody here can tell me, I think it's got about, it's only got one serious instrument in it, perhaps two. Um, but the first, uh, the Cody's and Rose machines presumably had no instruments at all. Barely, barely anything. Um, the first flight instrument, of course, is the piece of string for, for, for um, indicating drift. And that was in use by Percy Pilcher in 1893. Six, I think it is, 97. We have a picture of a glider with a piece of string tied on one of the wires so you can see 
whether whether he's pointing into wind or not. As I've heard it said that the Wright brothers flew by angle of attack, which I think many people should still do if they, they had proper angle of attack indicators. Yeah, in that might airplane. be so. I mean, the Wright Flyer three, the first powered aeroplane, it had several instruments on it. They, I mean, he, they had um, had an anemometer. It had um, it had an engine rev counter. It had enough on it to enable them to to log the details of each flight quite quite well. It just depended, you know, if, whether, you, whether you could afford to buy yourself an instrument or whether you needed to buy another wheel, which was probably more important. Would you say that Percy Pilcher probably had a better understanding of flight and, and what to do than A.V. Rowe did when he started the experiments? Well, it's a yes and no answer. I'm not being evasive. Um, the more we look at Pilcher, the more you begin to realise that a lot of his flights, most of his flights started at least and were done under tow. So to some degree, he was kiting. But he, he, the interesting thing is he did, on his first glider, put the fabric initially on the undersurface and then moved it onto the top. And Lilienthal always put it on the top surface. Uh, Cayley and Lilienthal and Horatio Phillips all knew that lift was created principally on the upper surface of a wing. Um, it seems that Rowe hadn't... Well, Cayley's stuff wasn't generally available, but he hadn't looked at what Phillips had done. Um, Phillips built rather extraordinary, eccentric-looking multiplanes, but his wind tunnel work was exceptional. And um, he patented very good wing sections much earlier. And if, if Rowe had looked at things like that, he might have learned a bit more. Yes, just to go back to an earlier question, I can tell you the 1912 Blackburn, I think the only instrument on that is the RPM gauge. Yes. As far as I can remember. Is it certainly enough? does not have an airspeed indicator. So, so well, the other instrument is the wind in your face, is it? Or, uh, That's right, yes. yes. At what point was uh, wing warping phased out and elevators start to be developed? Ailerons. You mean ailerons, yes. ailerons uh, the modern flying controllers yes. we accept um, today. Wing warping was still being used to some extent into the First World War. And it was revived in a slightly different sense for the Gossamer Condor, man-powered aeroplane. Although it didn't work in quite the same sense, but that's another story. Um, wing warping works perfectly well. But, because there's a structural, it can impose structural problems. It's exactly the same principle as ailerons, really, which is why the rights were granted their patent. Um, this often said the rights were granted, said the rights tried to patent the aeroplane, and it, this is utter rubbish. The rights patented, if you look at the rights patent, the, the primary patent, 1902, what they patented is a control system, a three-axis aeroplane control system. Um, the patent doesn't even include an engine in the diagram at all. And... Um, that patent, being a pioneer patent, is all, pioneer patents always allowed broad interpretations. And when, uh, when the rights were fighting infringers of their patents, Curtis's interwing ailerons and other lateral devices that worked on exactly the same principle as wing warping were regarded as infringements of the patent. And that, that's how it should have been. But, as I say, wing warping 
does have its problems and it, can, it is a primitive system and I would say, what, 1915 more or less, wing warping was on its way, well on its way out. Thank you. Gordon Bruce, if I could extend uh, the reply on wing warping and ailerons. I was reading papers this morning in the Public Record Office or the National Archive, whatever you want to call it, on the rights patent action against the War Office for the use of wing warping on the B-2. And I read there this morning Mervyn O'Gorman, superintendent of Farnborough, saying in 1913, we can now do without wing warping because we are moving to ailerons. <laughs> and true enough, the early versions of the BE-2 used wing warping, but later versions of the BE-2 used ailerons. Peter Waller. Uh, I'm, well, is there any evidence that Cody carried out experiments of some sort at Alexandra Palace? I ask this because I understand there is a, a pipe sticking out of the ground on the hill down towards on Wood Green side. The pipe is some two or three inches in diameter and goes into a rather larger cylinder and there is some sort of clamping device on the end of the cylinder. I've not seen this, so I'm afraid I can't describe it very clearly. Mm. Um, and this is reputed to be something to do with Cody's experiments. He certainly had kites at the Alexander Palace quite a long time. And I think <coughs> at Farnborough there was a, a monument called Cody's Tree, yes. which one understood he did engine tests and he said, what part did that play in the design of the aircraft, like propeller efficiency engines or basic aircraft design? As I understand it, he sort of tethered his aeroplane to the tree, probably with a dynamometer or something. He just tied it, used a spring balance. Was thrust measuring. One end on the tree and the other on the aeroplane. Thrust. thrust, yeah. Well, thrust engines and propeller, I've got. Yeah, these propellers were adjustable. Yes. One thing you brought out, um, Philip, I found fascinating, was how quickly Cody learned to fly his aeroplane. Yes. It took the Wrights a year to do a 360-degree circle. Cody, I think, did it within two or three months. Well, he did have the benefit of some previous experience, some previous people's experiences. Um, but even so, yes, I mean, the fact that at the end of '09 he was staying up for a hour or more and yeah. doing 40 miles it's quite something really it's a lot faster progress than the rights made well I'm not surprised the rights really they, took they, they, they looked at every very carefully what everyone had done and realised what needed to be done that had been neglected and then they really had to go back to basics and start again good evening um, my name is Eric Ferdinand Rowe grandson of Avery Rowe um, just um, to answer David Rowland's question about funding I think that the truth is that between 07 and 09, um, AV Rowe had no funding at all. And um, if you read uh, the food, the diet that he lived on every week, I think it illustrates that point very well. Um, one question I would just like to ask is about, or clarification is about um, AV Rowe's uh, supposed toad flights in July, because throughout his life he always denied that he had conducted any toad flights um, with the Antoinette engine. And indeed, there are many people who, albeit later, made witness statements to say that they'd seen the plane fly without a tow line attached or anything else. 
Um, and it seems to me that this all starts with the, um, the letter that um, he wrote to the Wright brothers. Um, but it's interesting to see that, for instance, when Colonel Semple was um, um, written to by the Wrights, um, that what they did is left out an awful lot of text between the two statements. And obviously, if you read the two things consecutively, it looks as though he is saying that he was conducting towed flights. Um, w what are your views on that, on the basis that it seems to me there is considerable doubt still um, and certainly no evidence to say that those flights in, in June were, in fact, towed? Um, on the contrary. Um, first of all, um, Rowe is very clear in his letter to Wilbur Wright in 1908, shortly after the experiments, his letter to Orville Wright, actually, I think it went, um, shortly after he'd left the site in August 1908, he wrote to Wilbur Wright, and if you read that letter, he very specifically states that he made six trials after installing the 24-horsepower Antoinette engine. Six trials, I mean, six trials after installing the engine, and that he, and that he conducted towed flights after installing the Antoinette. It's quite specific and it's quite clear. And he repeated the same thing on three other occasions in published letters in the motoring press. He also, of course, as I've said before, he said to Baden-Powell that he had nearly left the ground, we have the statement of Mr. Simmons, who wrote into the motoring magazine, and he actually wrote asking why Rowe had left the site at Brooklands. And he said that the machine had failed to rise. He didn't even say fly, he said failed to rise. Now, Simmons' letter was published, and Rowe responded very quickly. Rowe always responded, usually and very helpfully, at some length. In earlier... Was it late 1907, early 1908, when he had done earlier towed trials with a six-horsepower engine installed? It was mentioned in a couple of lines in a motoring magazine. And Rowe very quickly sent in a very long and informative letter describing those trials. In 1909, um, when Rowe first managed to get his triplane off six inches off the ground for about 50 feet, he wrote in, I think it was to flight, and he gave, again, quite a good, long, detailed description. When Simmons wrote his query in the motoring magazine in 1908, asking why Rowe had left the site and saying that machine had failed to rise, Rowe did the same. He wrote in a very long and informative reply, and in that reply, not only did he say again that he had made six trials since installing the Antoinette un and towed trials and did, did not actually claim a flight, but he did not refute or dispute Simmons's statement that the machine had failed to rise. And Rowe was always, at that time, was very careful to pick up people if they got him wrong one way or the other. We now have... Since I've written the book, we have found further evidence. Now, there are various belated, vague and imprecise witness statements about seeing Roe fly. 
There are a lot of unknowns in these letters. Um, they are, being belated doesn't help. The thing is that we have now found, or I have found, that the one flight for which a date is given by one of the belated witnesses is for the 8th of June, 1908. Now, I've already in the book stated some reasons why this seems very dubious that this will be the date that he would do his flight. But we have now found some other irrefutable evidence coupled with testimony by Roe himself that makes June the 8th extremely doubtful as a date for any trials at all, let alone an attempted flight. And that information is going to be released in the near future. Thank you. George Cox, you, perhaps you've described the careers of two remarkable men um, who were enterprising, creative, and physically very courageous when you look at uh, some of these pictures. What was the relationship like between the two of them with a sense of pioneering camaraderie? Did they share information, socialize, or loathe each other? I did look for this. Um, I could find nothing from Cody on Roe and I read out to you a little bit from Roe on Cody, but very little. Um, Roe, as he said, was fond of Cody. I think liked him in an affectionate sort of way. Um, but Roe was every bit the patriot, I think, and um, he didn't want a foreigner of any sort, American, French, coming uh, and taking, taking awards in Britain for flights to Manchester or or any sort of flight. Um, so, well, they were, they were competitors, but they were both facing enormous problems in, in pioneering aviation. But it's very difficult to find any direct statements of any length and any value that gives you an idea how one really felt about the other. Uh, I think they probably both knew that uh, the other had equally difficult problems, but of a slightly different nature. Gordon Bruce again. If I might follow on uh, to Philip's reply on uh, what Roe had done in 1908. Uh, late 1908, early 1909 was a period when the British press was anxious to report every Briton who had flown. Uh, names given, even those who had flown as passengers with the rights but no mention of A.V. Rowe. Uh, in fact, the only mentions of A.V. Rowe are in terms that up to now, his hopes had been dashed, and that was as at early 1909. Um, you mentioned the, the towed flights. Um, I'm, I'm, you didn't mention the quick-release mechanism that he developed, which allowed him to... Uh, glide down after he had been towed up, which and he, I believe, he did that a number of times. Yes, he t he glided back down, which well, surely, to, yes. but surely that demonstrated that it was essentially an airworthy machine. Um, well, under tow, as I said about Percy Pilcher's gliders, the machine is to some extent being flown as a kite, and the conditions under which it is airborne are slightly different, and um, kites can glide down as well. It doesn't demonstrate that the machine is aerodynamically 
efficient and practical totally at all. Um, Roe Ro, um, had to develop a quick release because he has a very nasty experience when the blokes in the car got very excited and just kept going. <laughs> and he didn't want to be up there anymore. And he didn't have a choice. Luckily, he got down safely. But his machine, by, by his own description, was apparently pretty badly damaged on that occasion. Do we know whether he had the engine running while he was being tested? No. He doesn't actually say precisely one way or the other. At any point, I don't think. I've never found a reference. And sorry, just uh, uh, regarding the propellers, uh, yes. because you, you sort of said that they were inefficient, um, but surely it wasn't one of the main problems, the gearing with the Antoinette, because obviously when he, with the triplane, he, just, he geared, geared the propeller down, and yes. that resolved a lot of the problems, and he sort of said if he'd done that, that would have made the biplane a lot more, you know, the thrust a lot more efficient. Isn't that, sure, surely, is it, isn't, how can you judge at the propeller? Because he tried quite a few configurations of the propeller, didn't he? Yes. But um, largely, he adhered he he mainly to the fan type on, on the biplane. Um, single surface things, um, flat metal plate propellers. Uh, he, he could vary the, um, the uh, propeller's um, pitch on the ground. He had a lot of trouble, as did all the pioneers, of making a propeller that wouldn't fly off simply because of the high centrifugal forces as well. These were fairly common problems at that time, and propeller design was, there was really nothing to work from, apart from um, ship's propellers. And, as I say, the fan type of propeller. And it was all done empirically, until the Wrights tackled it properly. But then, of course, the Wrights didn't, didn't um, release their wind tunnel work on wings and propellers. And the Wrights regarded... Uh, solved the problem by regarding a propeller as a wing moving through a circular path. And um, by doing that, they were able to work out the mathematics properly. Um, they, they used to have arguments, the two brothers, and um, they'd end up, they'd start off arguing one against the other, and they'd end up on the other side when they'd finished. Because the, prob the trouble with the propeller was that nothing seemed to be stationary. The propeller's going round, the aeroplane's going forward, and the air's being driven back, so there's nothing still. They didn't know where to start. Um, the gen gentleman mentioned that... Uh... In terms of propellers, Rybaczynski at Kuchino published his pr propeller um, data in 1907. Right. And at the same time, Ferdinand Ferber published a very influential book on aircraft design again in, in 1907. Yes. And the configuration of Ferber's aeroplane looks very similar to Cody's in, in some of the details. Have you got any comments on the French influence on Cody? It's been denied by Gibbs Smith, but I'm, I'm not altogether yeah, convinced. It's that. difficult because everyone was taking bits from everybody else's ideas at that time, of course. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Ferber, Ferber's influence initially was the Wrights. And his machine changed. But his aeroplanes... His powered aeroplanes weren't terribly successful. Um, you're saying, did Ferber influence Cody's design? It's difficult to so say. There's nothing directly obvious, I don't think. I mean, Kappa's association with the Wrights was by far more important, I think, because Kappa went over and met the Wrights at home, although he didn't see the aeroplane. He was shown lots of photographs. He was shown the engine. Um, 
the right photographs are very good quality, and there's a lot to learn from them. And talking, well, yes, he had the Antoinette for the Nullisecundus as well. Um, it was one of the better available engines. There weren't a lot of good engines around, really. Um, you can count them on the on the fingers of one foot. So, the Antoinette was one of the best. Uh, it was probably slightly on the heavy side, but you had to take what you could get until, until the miraculous gnome came along, of course. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the aircraft being built to celebrate the centenary this year? I'm not sure who's actually building now, because I understand that the Southampton group has stopped building. They're not building the Cody anymore. So we only have the Cody at Farnborough. I hope it's going to be a faithful reproduction. The... Um, there are several row aeroplanes being built in Manchester, one of which is the triplane, which is a little bit of a hybrid between the first and second triplane. The, uh, we already have a, a good biplane, good row 1908 biplane replica at Brooklands, which Mike Beach built in, I think, 87. There's one being built now, which is um, another model of the biplane, 1908, but it is less of a replica. It's more, from what I've seen, and from, from, from what the differences I've noted between it and the original, um, it's more of a, a cosmetic look-alike, perhaps, would be a way to describe it. Superficially, externally, it will look like it. But there are a lot of major differences in the structure and in, and in, the, and in some of the systems and components. Um, I'm not quite sure why why we do these things. They did in America with, and in Germany they built the Whitehead um, and they made lots of changes to the Whitehead replica in, in um, America and, or is it the German one? And their argument, no, it's the German one. And their argument in making the differences was that um, Whitehead would undoubtedly have done the same so they felt they were justified in doing it. And um, I'm afraid I can't go along with those sort of arguments. Um, no, I mean, I, I've, if a replica is going to be a replica, then I'm afraid I'm a bit of a purist. Um, the Row 4 triplane at Shuttleworth is splendid. It hasn't got the right engine in it, but it's splendid, and it's a, a great looker, and it looks very much a very close resemblance of its forebear, and it's got wing warping. Um, it would have been nice to see a row 500, because that was really the one that got row, the row business off the, into the air. Um, the first one to be ordered in numbers. And it would, a row 500 would be a splendid flyer, I'm sure, at displays. Um, that's a shame. Um, it's a shame because we've got how many row triplanes now? Three or four? Um, it would be nice to have something different. David Wilson. Uh, I am the project manager for the build of the replica of a Cody number one. Is what it it's at number? Farnborough? Sorry, at, at Farnborough. Farnborough. Yeah. Number 1A. Uh, the, the, the Southampton replica was number one, but it was a very, very different airplane that they were attempting, and they were attempting to make it airworthy. And airworthiness and, Ro and co, no, Cody, I'll get it right. Airworthiness and Cody didn't go terribly well together. Um, we have never, ever... Uh, attempted anything other than a static replica. The basis of our 
replica is photographs from the time. Because Cody was a showman, he had lots of photographs taken, and we reverse-engineered the photographs with no attempt at airworthiness. The primary requirement, of course, is to be safe in static sense. The secondary requirement is to be quick because we didn't start soon enough, and the third requirement was to make it look right. And if we haven't got it right by July, then we can put it right later. But in July, I think you will all agree that in comparing what you see in front of you with the photographs, it's pretty good. Uh, I can tell you about the propellers. We took delivery of them last week. All they are is a tube with a piece of flat aluminium riveted to them, and they're aerodynamically rubbish. Uh, how they actually pull anything through the air is quite staggering. Um, staggering is the, exactly the right word. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They're, they're crude. And uh, I, I obviously would like to talk to Philip later on because I haven't disagreed with the word he said and I expected to have to do so. So it's been super for me tonight. I also, by the way, I, I bought uh, the Avro book. Uh, I've seen the replica of Brooklyn's and I'm deeply impressed with it. Um, they have made no bones about the fact that they've had to compromise towards their worthiness. But the compromises they've made in terms of what it looks like, I think, are pretty good. Um, and you will be able to compare the Cody aircraft with a replica of a 1911 Wright Brothers aircraft, which is being brought over from Dayton, Ohio, with the Cody biplane built, being built at Brooklands and the Cody triplane being built at Woodford, I think. Avro triplane. The Avro, I beg your pardon. The Avro triplane being built at, at Woodford. They'll all be in a chalet at the Farnborough Air Show in July. Um, so you'll be able to walk around them and compare them. And ours will, will have its propellers turning, but the turning mechanism will be the motor of uh, a wheelchair. <laughs> uh, and there will be a loud noise to represent an open-piped 8-litre V8 Antoinette water-cooled engine. And that, ear defenders for the audience. It really gets your attention. <laughs> Uh, just to add to that, um, the um, Roe biplane will actually be at um, Brooklands in June, and um, you would be able to see it taxiing there. Um, I won't say that we'll be attempting to fly it there, that might come later, but certainly it'll be in taxiable form there, so you can see it moving there, whereas at Farnborough, I'm afraid, all, all the aircraft will have to be static. Sorry, um, uh, Alan Wynn, I'm the director of Brooklands Museum. Can I just add a small thing about the... Uh, the airworthy, um, using all terms very loosely in very large inverted commas, uh, aeroplane which we are building uh, at Brooklands. Uh, one of the principal reasons for small changes in the design was, of course, that uh, the aeroplane uh, is intended to go out and about uh, to be seen in other places. And uh, we've done something which uh, Roe didn't do, which was make it easily dismantleable so that you could move it. Um, as we well know, Mr. Roe had distinct trouble picking up his aeroplane and um, carrying it over the railings at Brooklands. Uh, eight, eight, eight men with the Antoinette were needed. Yes. <laughs> we, we've done it rather more simply and designed the, uh, the the wing boxes to be detached, and that caused various minor structural things. But that, that's the reason why, so that it can be demonstrated at Farnborough. It will be demonstrated on the, uh, on the remains of the old Brooklands runway um, uh, in June. 
which is where we'll formally unveil it, and then it'll be going on a bit of a tour. It'll appear at Lee Marshes and other places, and that's one of the reasons why uh, it is slightly different, but uh, the quality of the construction and uh, certainly the, the structure of the wings is very similar to uh, that of the original, and I apologise, it has not got uh, one of the uh, paddle uh, propellers which, uh, which Roe uh, worked so hard with. We will have some of those on display in June, uh, but we've gone for a modern propeller so it can actually push itself along. Okay. Uh, I think you have to. <laughs> to return to ailerons, uh, in an article, very ancient article in flight, it was claimed that an Englishman in 1872 actually patented an aileron-type device. Then a different article, they, uh, the term aileron was actually coined by the Canadians. Is, is that right? I believe it's French in origin. But, um, uh, but it, yes. it was an yes. article on French yes. on Canadian aviation. But and the they early history it. of the aileron, it's, you have to be very careful. Um, there was a man called Hart who patented an aileron system very early on, but it was never really adopted and taken up. Uh, I think the patent lapsed. But you have to be very careful. Um, I have this trouble um, with Pierce in New Zealand where they they state that he had ailerons. But if you read his patent for the machine he built, they're not ailerons. They're steering air brakes, which work in the opposite sense to ailerons. And what that means is that they work sing they sing they act they're single acting, so they only go down. And you lower them, and the drag. The idea is that the drag makes the aeroplane turn that way. What they, of course, forget is that in doing, in creating that drag, the wing will stall on the inside of the turn. So, a lot of people had this, had this wrong idea of how an aileron worked. Um, and they actually fitted steering air brakes to aeroplanes in, in a lot of very early aeroplanes and wondered why they couldn't get off the ground. But we are running out of time. Could I ask Nikoki to uh, propose a vote of thanks? Mr. President, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm honoured to be giving this vote of thanks. Um, honoured both as a member of the Historical Group Committee and as editor of Aeroplane Magazine. Um, and I, I'm honoured because um, the subject of tonight's talk is my favourite period in aviation, the very early years. Um, that time when it was pretty normal to design your own aeroplane as a pioneer. And when you designed it, you built it yourself. And quite often when you'd done that, you taught yourself to fly in that aeroplane with little or no previous experience. So these pioneers, without exception, these pioneers were incredibly brave. On, on the one hand, incredibly brave, resourceful, multi-skilled. On the other hand, bonkers. Um, I do have an interest to declare... Phil Jarrett has been a good friend and colleague of mine for very nearly 25 years, and he writes a lot for my magazine. Um, so in giving this vote of thanks, I, or being involved at all, I could be accused of, of bias. Um, however, I believe that what Phil has given us tonight is a very fair comparison, uh, and indeed a masterly comparison, between Cody and Rowe, uh, and a comparison of who did what and when. And I think that's been put across very clearly, very succinctly, lots of detail, lots of interest. Um, I'm quite familiar with a lot of Phil's research on this. Um, over the last couple of years, he's been updating me regularly 
And when I say regularly, I mean about every five minutes. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I am quite familiar. But what his research has done, it's underlined that Cody and Rowe were both giants of the early years of British aviation. They were very different men, but they were both towering figures. Um, on the question of who was first to fly, which is controversial, it's one of the reasons a large number of us are here tonight. It, it still excites passions, 100 years on, this question of who was first. Um, so on that question, I'd like to change the scale from towering to diminutive and recall that aphorism which applies so often in areas of, of extreme innovation. It's the second mouse that gets the cheese. <laughs> Cody was first to fly in the UK, but Rowe's achievements from 1910 took off literally and figuratively. And with the Avro 500, which quickly morphed into the 504, and then leaping ahead generation by generation to the Lancaster and the Vulcan, it's Rowe who has left the most lasting legacy. So I'd like to, you to uh, join me in thanking Phil again for a, a magnificent talk and a magnificent evening. Thanks, Phil. <laughs>